0: 27, and we'll, we'll begin. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, it's very important that you remember that little phrase, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, you're, they're saying that you're John the Baptist, and others just saying, you're Elijah, and others one of the, the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered, you are the Christ And then he rebuked, that's what the word means, he rebuked and charged them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly to them. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning from the way and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter back and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but the things of man. Here's our text this morning. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, if anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow, let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that first um, and foremost that you would be exalted by everything that is uh, said and sung and um, that you would, you would receive our heart's adoration. I pray for everyone in this room today that they, that they would be given uh, your Holy Spirit to, to really understand this passage, to really take it in. I pray, God, that, um, I, well, I, I just ask that we wouldn't be offended by you. But I know that some will be. You made a very, very difficult call, and you set the bar really high here. So I pray that you would minister to us what this even means. For those of us that have uh, a difficult time believing in you because of the things that have been done to us, or in the church, or whatever, that Holy Spirit, that you would testify of Jesus today. That we would see Jesus as beautiful, and awesome, and worthy of our lives, And we ask God that this morning our minds would be open to you, our eyes would be open to you, our ears would be unstopped, and you would loosen our lips to praise you. And I ask God that you would please use me and anoint me. I need your help. This is a very, 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 very daunting text. So we look to you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been in Mark's gospel now since we began. We're coming up on a year anniversary of the church in January. And we've been saying that Mark's goal, his whole goal in, uh, in writing this this narrative, this book, is to show us Jesus. And in Mark chapter eight, we come to the turning point in the entire narrative. From act one to act two, Mark divides his book up into two parts. Act one, part one of Mark's book is from chapters one through the middle of chapter eight. And the whole beginning of the book of Mark is all about the, 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 the nature of Jesus, who Jesus is. So all Mark is trying to, to communicate to us, the audience, and the first audience is who is Jesus, his nature. And then the second half of the book that begins kind of right here in the middle of chapter 8 and it goes on is about, about what his mission is, what he's come to accomplish, the mission and the purpose of Jesus. And this turning point really knocks the wind out of the disciples. It's like Jesus sucker punches them right in the middle. Because when they're following Jesus, it's probably like, maybe you've, when you came to church the first couple times, you kind of had some uh, kind of preconceived ideas of who Jesus is, what the church is supposed to do, and you come in, and then Jesus just like punches you right in the stomach. Like, wait, I wasn't expecting that. They're following Jesus, they say that he's the Christ, they have all these expectations of what that means, and then Jesus turns around, and he says, well, this is actually what it means to be my disciple. The narrative turns with this absolutely appalling comment by Jesus. Everything was just fine. They were walking. There's probably a warm day, walking to Caesarea Philippi with the disciples. The conversation was probably really, really sweet as they're walking, and Jesus starts going, Hey, what are people saying about me? They're like, oh they're saying great things. They're saying you're like you're like one of the greatest. Elijah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist. They're even saying you're somehow some sort of supernatural figure because we all know John the Baptist would beheaded. And people don't survive that kind of stuff. And they're saying that you're like that. And then he goes, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter like chimes up, because you know Peter. You know, like he wants to be the guy that represents him. "You're, You're the Christ. And then Jesus tells him, rebukes him, not rebukes him like, hey, I'm not the Christ. He rebukes him like, hey, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. And this is what he says. He then says, Because what Peter says to Jesus is that you're the anointed one of God because the word Christ means anointed. You're the anointed one of God. You're you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the true King. You're the King to end all kings. You're the King of kings. You're the King to restore all things and put all things right again. And Jesus says, correct, I am that. And then he says this, and this is where he sucker punches them because nobody expected this. He said, right, and then the Son of Man, the Christ, must suffer and die. That was appalling. Christ's were supposed to win, not die. Christ's were supposed to go to the throne, not a cross. Christ's can't die. And so this was appalling to them. Then Jesus says something even more shocking our text today. Even more shocking than that. Not only do I have to die, but if you want to follow me, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you you, you could call it Uh, we call it today Christians, or followers of Jesus, or followers of the way, whatever you want to call it. If you want to follow Jesus, you too have to join me on the way to execution. You must give up your life, you must take up your cross, and you must follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life, you'll save your life. Now what is Jesus saying? And this is what we're going to talk about today because that is somewhat appalling to them at the time and it should be to us today. If I said, "Hey, I want you you want to follow Jesus, you want to do you want to start coming here and you want to start following Jesus," and I said, "Hey, you have to die." You would be like, "What? I thought I came here for life." No, death. You must die. And not just any death, a humiliating, excruciating, painful death. You'd be like, "Wait a second. I'm out." Or, I need a little bit more explanation, please. I don't understand what you're saying. So let's try to get to what Jesus is saying here. And this is how we're going to do it. Following Jesus in this in Mark's narrative here, and continue to the end of it, means new terms, a new identity, and a new pattern. So following Jesus is new terms, new identity, and a new pattern. So let's look at this first one first. That's why it's first. New terms. When we take the phrase, take up your cross, and we commonly apply that, we commonly apply take up your cross to follow Jesus, it's not that hard of a saying because it's very common. We probably use it, if you grew up in church or been around church, you've probably used this saying a lot, take up your cross. But when we apply it the way it was originally intended, it's one of the hardest sayings in the Bible. And I really don't think that Jesus said anything more difficult than this. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Here, Jesus gives the terms of being his disciple. These are the terms of following Jesus. And these terms are both foundational and universal. They're foundational because they're entry level for everybody. Can I just say this? That Christians have made following Jesus so many things. I mean, so many weird things. And normally they're about us how Jesus affirms us in our whateverness, however I am, he affirms me, or how Jesus saves me from bad, unwanted things, how we've made following Jesus into a culture, into an industry of like B-rated movies and like subpar music, we've made Jesus into clothing labels, and then when you read this, take up your cross and follow me, all of those things so absolutely absurd, what Jesus says here is following me means denying yourself and taking up your cross. What does that mean exactly? Because it sounds pretty bloody. When Jesus said take up your cross, it's basic foundational condition for discipleship. Now when I say cross, you might think of rosary beads or the necklace you got as a child that you wear sometimes, especially when you go home. We've adopted this and we've really domesticated this saying into Uh, Our vernacular, which means, like, hey, when I take up my cross, that means um, my cross to bear is my husband. He's my cross to bear. Or, like, my roommates are my cross to bear. Or some of you guys are like, my boss is my cross to bear. And we kind of domesticated this saying my cross to bear, or it's this disability that I have, you know? Um, This is my cross to bear. Now, that's not exactly how the first hearers of Mark heard this. Mark's gospel would have been heard entirely different. This language is, a calcu- is calculated to shock listeners and to evoke a vivid and horrifying image of a death march with all of its shameful publicity. The Roman cross, the first listeners would have known a Roman cross. The Roman cross was an instrument of cruelty and pain and dehumanization and shame. The cross symbolized the hated Roman oppression, and it was reserved for the lowest of criminals. It was so shameful and humiliating that the Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. They wouldn't subject their own citizens to it because it was that bad. But here's the deal. Mark's book was written near Rome to a particularly Roman audience at the time where a Caesar named Nero were having Christians crucified. So the first audience wouldn't have heard this as Jesus saying, "Hey guys, um, your cross to bear is dealing with your boss and dealing with your spouse and your roommate." What they would have heard, the first audience, when they heard this, they would have heard this: "Following me means there's a good possibility that following me might mean you get humiliated and killed." That's what it means. The first audience would have heard it that way. You and I read are like, "Hey, take up your cross, deal with your boss." deal with your difficult circumstances, deal with your position in life, deal with it, just, hey, just take up your cross. The first listeners would have heard this, if I follow Jesus, I might be killed. I actually might be crucified, literally, if I follow Jesus. That's how the first audience would have heard it. And so it's a lot more potent than we think. And we've already learned that the implications of Jesus being the Messiah meant he had to die But here, Jesus says, not only that, but the implications of you following me means you have to die as well. He says, take up your cross. Now, notice verse 34. Jesus calls the crowd to him and says this. Take up your cross and follow me. He calls the crowd. Now, normally, when Jesus does difficult sayings like this, he draws the disciples away and he, like, talks to them privately pulls him outside to a room, pulls him aside up into a mountain or something, and he talks to him privately about the conditions of discipleship. Here, he calls the crowd. He calls everybody. Hey, everybody, come here. He's in Caesarea Philippi, a very Gentile place. So it must have been Jews and Gentiles mixed. He called them all to him. He said, listen, do you want to follow me? Whoever follows me, take up their cross and follow me. Why did Jesus call everyone to hear this? Because here, Jesus universalizes the call. It's whoever wants to follow him. This is not just for the first century believers or the believers in China or Iraq where being a follower of Jesus can be life-threatening. This is all followers of Jesus in all times and in all places. So you see how, like, it's a very difficult thing to even be uh, preaching this, to even be communicating this? Like, the conditions of discipleship are that you take up a cross and you follow Jesus, If you're in art, or fashion, or if you're in finance, or you're in a startup company, if you're a husband, or a mom, or a single, or you're still struggling with what you are, this is for everyone. This is the conditions of discipleship for everybody. And we tend to think that people who really deny themselves, who really give something up for the cause of Christ, are like a special elite task force of followers. Like they're special people. Like, when someone does something gnarly for Jesus, you're like, oh my gosh, they're legit. They're like this special force of people. But normal Christians, you know, show up to church on Sunday and try not to screw up that bad during the week. That's normal Christianity. But like super-duper Christianity, super-duper following Jesus, that's even a thing, is like doing something self-sacrificing. But Jesus says, no, no. According to this, Jesus said, that's not true. Anyone who would come after me, anyone, who would follow Jesus, these are the terms, deny yourself. Now, what exactly does deny yourself mean? It means that you take up a completely new identity, and that's what this, this, this language that Jesus uses here means. It means take up a brand new identity. Following Jesus might mean death, okay? Now, let's just be, let me just be real honest. It might not mean death for most of us in here, Following Jesus might not mean that you're killed on the streets of San Francisco. Maybe, maybe, but not, probably not. So when we read this, we're like, well, we're, not, we're Americans. We're not going to be killed for following Jesus. Okay, so then what does this mean then? How do we apply this to today? How do we take the words of God and make them real to us today? If, if following Jesus doesn't mean that really necessarily, probably not that we're all going to die if we follow Jesus. What does it mean then? And Jesus says here what it means basically is that you get a completely new identity. Look at verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, this is a paradox. Like, what do you mean? If I give my life, I save it, but if I save it, I lose it. That doesn't make any sense. In the original Greek, this word for life is suke, or we would pronounce it psyche, where we get the word Psychology. It means your personhood, your personality, your identity, the core of one's being. Jesus says, to find your true identity, you must lose your identity. Now, this isn't all doom and gloom. And you're like, dude, this is such a depressing teaching. I get to see your faces. You're like, wow, happy Thanksgiving to me. This is super depressing. Now, this isn't like doom and gloom necessarily. Jesus here isn't going, hey... I want everybody to die because, you know, I'm over you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say die for, die for, for death's sake. He doesn't say, hey, just, just kill yourself or ignore yourself or lose yourself to be lost or forget your possibilities. That's Eastern philosophy. That's not the teachings of Jesus. Looking at verse 35, it's obvious that Jesus wants you to save your life. He says your life is Precious. He doesn't want you to waste your life. He doesn't want you to lose your life. He actually wants you to save your life. Don't waste, lose, squander your life, save your life. Now, what he's saying here is these are the conditions of saving your life. This is how you find your true self. This is how you save your life. But the way that Jesus says that we are to save our lives are counterintuitive to the modern view of life. See, the way that we go about saving our lives is by hoarding. Have you seen that show, Hoarders? It's a really hard show for someone who's a germaphobe like me to watch. Like, my wife and I were watching it a couple weeks ago, and I couldn't watch most of it. I had to turn away. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with that right now. I just, too many things in my life, I just can't deal with hoarders right now. But it, those are real things. Now, to be honest, we're all hoarders. Some of us are more neat hoarders than others, but we all are this way. We're all hoarders. And the same reason the people in that show keep everything is the reason that you and I try to keep our own lives the same. That's why we try to hoard everything. It's who we are. It's who we are. Our identity is wrapped up in things and stuff and experiences. And that's why we try to hoard every experience that we can. We try to hoard the college life and then the career life and the San Francisco life. We try to hoard it to ourselves. We try to make the city about us. Our marriages, our relationships are about us. We hoard everything because that's how we find ourselves. That's how we think we find ourselves. And that's why even in that movie, they bring a therapist along with the cleanup crew. You ever notice that if you've seen that? They bring a therapist. Why? Because their identity is in their junk. It's the same thing with us, though. If I started pulling everything out of your life, you're like, I don't even know who I am anymore. When you lose your job, when we can't find a, 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 a relationship or a significant other, we don't know who we are Why? Because our lives are wrapped up in that stuff. We typically think that the way to save our lives is to hang on to everything that comes within our grasp. Everything. Money, I want it. Material things, people, relationship, family, experiences, creativity, whatever would come our way, we just want to hoard it to ourselves. And these things define us. They give us a self, or at least a self-worth. And I did this, I, I do this often. I, my, my heart, I've told you this, is a, a, a continual idle factory. And I have to continue to buffet my own flesh. I have to continue to, to speak and preach the gospel to my own heart. But I did this, I remember I did this when I got my first apartment by myself, a studio apartment. I remember when I, I first got it and I fixed it all up and I loved it so much. I remember, and this is like, I can't believe I'm sharing this, but I will. I looked in the mirror one day, okay, I don't recommend this. Um, I looked in the mirror, and I remember having this conscious thought, like legitimately I had this thought, like if the people in my elementary school <laughs> and my junior high school could see me now, they could see my life in my apartment and how it's like, has stuff from like crate and barrel in it, and they just saw me. They would think, well, you're not, you why did we ever not be your friend? Why didn't we ever love you? Like, I remember having this really weird, self-centered, stupid thought, Oh, I know. (laughs) This is us, though. I mean, this is all of us. We do that with so many things, relationships, or family, or where we live, or whatever. And we look at it, and we're like, oh, people can see me. They just see what I have. They see who, and we find our identity in that stuff. And Jesus is saying that the way we get true identity, the way we find our true selves, is not by hoarding and gaining things in this world. Look at verse 36. What is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, what if you gained everything you ever wanted but you didn't have a self? Jesus is saying that you don't have a self if your self consists of what you have or what you've done or whom you're with. Because what happens when those things are taken away or lost or stolen? You feel like you don't have a self anymore. You have a full-on identity crisis what if you can't find a job or you can't get into that college or you can't get in that relationship or that relationship goes away you lose your sense of self every culture and every generation has their own set of what it deems valuable many of your parents or our parents and our grandparents deem family as very valuable So, when you go home or when you go to your family for the holidays, you might hear, why aren't you married yet? You're 24. You should have a family of five by now. (laughs) you're, you're, You're a beautiful person. Surely you can find someone or something like that. And that usually makes you feel really good about yourself. But that's what they deem valuable. But you, what you deem valuable is independence, career, artistic expression, So it's about our jobs and our our experiences and our wardrobe and our stuff and our apartment or our schooling, and that's what we think is valuable. If you think about it, you know you can't build your life on your parents' approval because your parents' approval can be here one Christmas and then gone the next Christmas. But listen, you also can't build your life on career or success either because that comes and goes as well. So Jesus says, Jesus calls his followers to build their lives on something completely different. Listen, here it is. He says, build your life on death. Build your life on death, my death, for you. That's where you'll find your true identity. Richard Hayes um, wrote a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament, a great, great book, and he writes this about this section of Scripture. To be Jesus' disciple means to allow one's own identity... To be stamped by the identity of the one who died forsaken on the cross. When we embrace Mark's answer to the question, who do you say that I am? We are not just making a theological affirmation about Jesus' identity. We are choosing our own identity as well. If last week you heard that teaching, who do you say that I am? And you're in here, and you're like, I say that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Messiah, He is my Savior. You're not just making a theological claim about Jesus you're also choosing your own identity. Your identity now is subsumed in Jesus' identity. Your identity is to be marked by the cross. Your identity is to be marked by self-denial. Your identity as a follower of Jesus needs to be marked by these things. Your life should not be bound by changeable things like family and status and career and money or your apartment, because later on I did lose that apartment because I couldn't afford it anymore, and it crushed me. And I lost my identity for a while, but then I found it. Okay. Our identity is found in the unchangeable truth of the gospel. That's when we find a real self. C.S. Lewis, commenting on this same passage, writes, I am not, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call, quote, me, can be very easily explained It is not, it is when I turn to Christ, when I give up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. Does that sound strange? The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Please listen to that last sentence. Nothing in you, nothing in you, career, or status, or relationship, or whatever you're really, really, really wanting. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Do you see what, what Jesus going to the cross means? A lot of us think this. When we, if we grew up in church, or we've been around church for a while, the cross means this. The cross of Jesus means I'm saved, and then I move on from there. But actually, if you read the entire New Testament, the cross of Jesus now becomes a brand new way of living. It's a new pattern of living. That actually brings us to our last point. You get a brand new pattern as well when you trust in Christ. It's the way we now live and move and have our being. From this point on, from the rest, for the rest of the Bible, from Mark 8, for the rest of the Bible, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus will be the new operating pattern of faithfulness to Jesus and what it means to follow him. I'm going to briefly give you a little overview of this right now, but then we're going to be talking about it for the rest of the book of Mark. Actually, maybe for the rest of our church. The cross and the resurrection need to be the operating principle of the follower of Jesus. And let me give you a quick example of what this means. This applies to ethics in the Bible. Ethics. The Bible has ethics, living out what Jesus teaches and what the Bible teaches about ethics. This could be sex ethics or money ethics or what constitutes a sin. See, the operating operating principles of the world think that you're crazy, think that I'm crazy. When I I go, I live by what Jesus teaches and I live by what the Bible teaches, people think I'm crazy. Now, you might not be offended by Jesus, but look what he says here in verse 29. Verse 29. Whoops, wrong page. Verse 37. Actually, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me, okay, we're like, we're not ashamed of Jesus, but listen, look at that next phrase. And my words. Are you afraid of what Jesus teaches? See, some people, when you start believing the words of Jesus, and you start believing the words of the scriptures, which Jesus based his whole entire life and ministry upon, people think you're crazy. Like, you believe that about the Bible? You believe that about sin? You believe that about sex? You believe that about money? You're, you're insane. And you're weird and you're zealous, and you need to get away from me. This is the operating principle from this point on. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Deny the world. Deny yourself. Because your flesh might even fight it. Do I really believe that? That sounds really crazy and extreme. Deny your flesh, deny yourself, and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Do you really believe that about forgiveness? Do you believe that about turning the other cheek? Do you believe that about serving and giving your life away? Our flesh doesn't really believe that, but we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. The call of the follower of Jesus is to deny yourself and take up your cross. In the face of a mocking world and even in the desires of our flesh, Look at the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter two. He says this, have this mind among yourselves. Now, please remember that. The whole premise of this thing is Paul's writing, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the mind that you're supposed to have. This is the way you're supposed to live out your lives. Again, this is all predicated on Mark chapter eight. Jesus started this and Paul took this up. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours. It's your mind. Why? In Christ. It's now your new identity. This is who you are now. This is the new pattern of living because you're now in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what this is saying. This is what Paul's writing. Though Christ was deity, and though he was deity, he came as Messiah, God in flesh, and because of his power and authority, he had weight. He could do anything he wanted. He is the king of the universe, and everyone should bow down and worship Him. And he couldn't make people do that, but he didn't. He could have threw around his weight as the Son of God but he didn't. He humbled himself. Then he emptied himself. And then he died, and then he died on a cross. That's the way that Christians are to live. What does that mean as you become a boss in your company? What does that mean as you get a new roommate and you live there for two years and you live there for a, a week? You think you have seniority, don't you? Like, I lived here for two years, and this is my stuff, and this is my stuff, and you don't touch any of my stuff and you're a boss. Now, I have a, now people have to serve me and do this to me. I'm the, I'm, I'm the boss of this company now. I have seniority. I've been here six months. <laughs> what could you do at that point? What does the world expect you to do? Own your authority. Throw around your weight. You can do that. You have the seniority to do that. What did Jesus do? He didn't. He humbled himself to serve and to love. The Christians now, the followers of Jesus now be op- to be embodied that sort of gospel. I could, as a boss, throw my weight around. But instead of doing that, what does the gospel say? I humble myself and I serve. That's so counterintuitive to what we think. I could, when a new roommate moves in, just like, listen, this is my stuff, this is all this stuff, you prefer me, I've lived here longer. Or you could take up your cross and humble yourself, and go, how can I serve you? This is to be the operating principles now of someone who follows Jesus. And this is carried on from here for the rest of the New Testament. See, the disciples expected Jesus to throw around his weight. That's why Peter was so mad at Jesus. You can't go to the cross. Are you crazy? You're the Christ. Let's go to Rome. Let's whoop on some people. I'm, I'm going to sit at your right hand. My brother's going to sit at your left. We're going we're to hang out. We're going to have a good time. I'm going to get a really cool cloak and like a, a cool sword, and, a, and a, I want a horse, and it's going to be awesome. And Jesus, we're there with you. You and me, we're going to do this thing together. Jesus goes, no, I'm going to a cross. And I'm like, we, we don't understand that. The disciples thought that Jesus would ascend to a throne by violence, by taking what was rightfully his as Messiah, the Christ, Actually, Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul, he was Saul, he thought the same thing. This is why he persecuted Christians, and this is why he had them killed, and he was on his way to Damascus to imprison more. They believed the way God was going to win was by distributing violence, when it was actually through the absorption of violence on the cross that God won. The disciples thought that God was going to deal out violence when he came. Paul thought that God wins over Christianity by dealing out violence. It was not until both the disciples and Paul saw that on the cross, actually Jesus absorbed violence to win. And that now becomes our new pattern for people who follow Christ. It was seeing Jesus at the end of the book of Mark, crucified and resurrected, that Jesus changed everything For both the disciples and Paul. See, the experience of the resurrected, crucified Jesus leads the first century's disciples to an ethic of dying rather than killing. They took up their cross and they followed Jesus no matter what the cost. They humbled themselves and they served. And Paul uses this language throughout the New Testament that I could have done this, but I didn't. I served you. I could have done this. I'm with the weaker brother and I could with the weaker brother drink all I want, but I didn't because I served them. I have rights. I had rights, but I laid them down for the sake of Christ. And actually proves that you're living by this new hermeneutic. It proves that you're living by this new interpretation that the cross now defines my life. I lay my life down. I say no to my ambitions and my flesh and people that are saying that I have to believe this or do that, and I follow Jesus, and I love and I serve people for the gospel's sake, and the only way you can do this. Now, a lot of us try to do this pattern of living without getting a new identity, and that's wrong. If you're going to leave away, leave this place and go, you know, I know what to do now. I know. Okay, I'll live this new pattern of life. I'm going I'm to serve my roommates. Oh, you're going to see this. and going to be awesome. I'm going to serve them. I'm a a boss now. I'm going to be loving my, the people that work under under me is going to be awesome. You do that for like a week and you'll get tired of it and you're just like, you know, I can't do this anymore. You need a new identity. Your identity needs to be found in Jesus. And once you have this new identity, maybe a more common vernacular, common way of using this is dead man walking. You become a dead man walking. You become a, a person who's just so absorbed by Jesus and the gospel, that the world can say whatever it wants, it's flat, your flesh can say whatever it wants, but you are consumed with Christ. But that only happens as you look to him. Because see, the disciples don't get it yet, and they won't get it until the end of Mark, when they see Jesus on the cross, crucified for them. That's the only way I can get it that's the only way you can get it, is looking at the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, this topic is so, so difficult to even grasp in our flesh, and so I know that there's many of us that need to just to die. Die to our flesh, Lord. And I pray, um, Jesus, that you'd give us the strength to do this, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus and laying his life down and the only way that we can lay our lives down, the only way we can serve, the only way we can embody um, a crucified and risen Lord, the only way we can say, the, way, the same way that Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ li- lives in me and the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only way we can say that is if we see Jesus. So would you show us Christ, Lord, died and rose again for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name.